0: He was rostered for today, but uh, he hasn't been around for golf for the last week. We play together, at least I potter around, usually always lose, but the fellowship's good and the uh, environment's good. You're working through Corinthians, and we're up to chapter three. It's a fairly long chapter. We're not going to read it all at this moment, we will read it in sections. There are four clear sections in chapter 3. It's almost a sermon. It begins with an introduction, and then there's the body in two sections, and then there's the conclusion at the end of it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your word, inspired by your spirit, and we pray for his help in understanding this word and also, Lord, in applying it In our daily lives we pray that this church will be the richer and the individuals within it will be drawn closer to you through reflecting and responding appropriately to what you say today in jesus name we pray amen the first four verses technology is failing us already Somebody who knows how this thing works. Probably the batteries. (laughs) Reminds me of, uh, while he's doing that. Corrie ten Boom. Who remembers Corrie ten Boom? I once heard her speak. She had a wonderful illustration. She had a flashlight and she switched it on but nothing happened. She opened the back of it and pulled out a dirty rag and it had a nasty sin written on it. And she did this three or four times. Pulled another rag out, another rag. Got rid of all the rubbish. Still didn't work. Put some batteries in. Still didn't work properly until we got really powerful batteries. And she made such a powerful message there that our lives can be clogged up with all sorts of rubbish. And even when we're emptied, we need to replace that emptiness with the Holy Spirit's control over our lives. Are we in? Wow. Thank you. He's a technical man, that one. <laughs> let's read the first four verses. This will be familiar to you if you've been here for the last couple of weeks because Paul is picking up on material that you've already heard about. So let's read. Brothers, and the Greek word for brothers in this context includes the women, so this is not a sexist uh, passage of scripture. We're all included. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not yet ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Way back in chapter 1, Paul had mentioned that he'd heard on the grapevine that there was a bit of party spirit within the church at Corinth was divided four ways. Some were saying, oh, Paulus is the greatest, Paul's the greatest, Peter's the greatest, and then there was another very holy group, probably just as visible as as the others, we belong to Christ. And I'm not sure that they were being put in a good light when that was said. This might seem to be uh, not all that important. It's of the greatest importance. And this passage is one of the most condemning Scriptures on division within the church. Now, I don't know many of you, and I don't know what the state of this church is, but I do know that we can have our preferences, just as they did. Oh, I'm for Bill Forward, you know. <laughs> I'm not for Ivan Bowden, that's why I'm not here today, and so on. He speaks too long, he went for an hour and ten minutes not so long ago. Oh, yes, there's party spirit within the Christian church today, and I think Jesus is grieved when he recalls that prayer that they may be one. But what was behind this division? Well, they were Greeks, the Corinthians, and the Greeks really prized wisdom, they loved philosophy. And Paul comes along and he preaches what to them was a, a very simple message. Christ and him crucified. And they wanted something deeper. They were right into wisdom, worldly wisdom. And that's probably why some of them liked Apollos. He was a very learned man and perhaps his sermons had a few bigger words than Paul's sermons. But it was a very serious matter. It was causing jealousy and quarrelling. And those two words occur in the list in Galatians 5 of the works of the flesh. And these Corinthians were being fleshly or carnal Christians. I prefer fleshly to worldly as you have it in this text. Because worldly conjures up, you know, for some older folk, wearing a shirt that's too bright or a bit of lipstick if you're a lady. uh, (laughs) No, these Christians are operating in the realm of the flesh. And Paul is very concerned, very concerned. Well, what's he going to do about it? Well, he's going to give two points, and they're in yellow, and they're mixed metaphors. You are God's field. You are God's building. And those two words sum up the body of what he wants to say in this chapter. And it's a bit unfortunate that that's all in verse 8 or 9 rather because the God's building part really belongs in the next section. So you are God's field. And if you look through the text here, you'll see many references that are Related to the idea of a field. Verse 6 I planted the seed. Polus watered it. That doesn't mean he baptized them. That simply means that he followed up, taught the new Christians. But then he says, But God made it grow. The tenses here are helpful. In Greek, there's a past tense which can just represent a one off activity. There's another tense which represents continuous activity. And the first two, I planted, that's the sort of action just as a whole. The next one is uh, Paulus watered, that's again just the action as a whole. But the third, God made it to grow. God was working, perhaps after Paul stopped preaching, perhaps years later which is an encouragement. We've heard about a conversion. A seed might have been sown 20 years ago and God has been working and brought it to fruition just recently. A little word that you might share in passing with an old school friend that you catch up with of what's happened in your life since you left school could be the means that God will use to bring forth salvation for that person. Now, these Christians at at, at Corinth, they were concentrating on Paul and on Apollos. They were concentrating on the workers instead of on the God who had made them grow. And Paul is concerned because he doesn't think he's worthy of all the credit they're giving him. What does he say of himself? He says, we're only servants. You see that in verse... Five, we're only servants. You are making us to be bosses, masters, gurus. Oh, Apollos, he's a great guy. No, Apollos is just a servant. We are doing what God assigned for us to do. We're not special. In fact, he goes on to say in verse, uh, yes, in verse five. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? He goes on to say that we are nothing we are nobodies it's God who is the one who should get our attention there was a famous um, conductor called Arturo Toscanini and he was a fairly hard taskmaster to work under and one day he was conducting a practice session, session for a piece by Beethoven And he said to the members of the orchestra, you are nothing! And that didn't come as a big surprise to them because they'd heard that sort of stuff before and they'd felt his treatment of them to reflect his uh, feeling towards them. And then he said, I am nothing! They were very surprised about that because he always thought he was a real somebody, not the humblest of men. And then he said, Beethoven is everything! Bill Forward is a nothing. God is the someone. It's not Billy Graham. He may have led Louis Zamperini to Christ, but it's God who makes it grow. And you are God's field. And if you're a believer today, it's because the seed was planted through a message you heard by someone who is a, just a mere servant of God a nobody God has used a lot of people whose names we don't even know you wouldn't know who led C.H. Spurgeon to Christ on a cold winter's day when very few turned up for church but the young C.H. Spurgeon did and heard a text from Isaiah look unto me and be ye saved and he did look to to the Lord and he was saved how many of you could name the preacher who led Billy Graham to Christ Mordecai Ham I think from memory but it doesn't matter he doesn't want to be known it's God who must be given the credit he makes things grow and then Paul goes on to talk about our being God's building. Now, this is a longer passage, but you'll see the connection and how this simply expands on you are God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Not difficult to see the links in that passage to you are God's building you're God's field because the seed was planted in you it was watered through follow up teaching and you were producing fruit but you're God's building Paul laid the foundation, how did he do that well you read about it earlier in Corinthians he said I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified He said, we preach Christ crucified. The Greeks think it's foolishness. The Jews see it as a stumbling block. But for us it is the power of God. That's how he laid the foundation. If you met Paul in Corinth on a Saturday night and said, what are you going to preach on tomorrow? He'd have said, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You met him the following Saturday night and said, what are you going to preach on? He would have said, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why did he emphasise this? Because he wanted to lay a solid foundation for the building which God was going to build in Corinth. And he says there's no other foundation. No other foundation except Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a verse of an old hymn later. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, that is the sweetest frame of mind, that I feel good today, that I'm happy. No, you don't trust in that. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. And the chorus is, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground. Is sinking sand. What are you trusting in today? What's the foundation of your life? There was a system of, of evangelism known as Evangelism Explosion, and that uh, was a door to door approach to evangelism. And they had two questions, one of which I think is excellent. They would ask people this question If you died today, And stood before God and he were to ask you why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now that's a good question because it requires a person to think about an answer. It's not a are you going to heaven? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, no question. But express in words the basis of your hope. Or if you like, What is the foundation of your spiritual life? Do You know why Paul was so incensed at what was happening happening in Galatia that he dashed off the letter to the Galatians and he said, if you trust in things like circumcision, Christ will profit you, how much? Nothing. It is Christ plus nobody. It is Christ plus nothing. I remember speaking to a young man after a meeting. He wanted to accept Christ. And he did pray to accept Christ, as I recall. But he didn't seem to have any assurance of salvation. And I discovered that he came from a church where baptism was very, very important, perhaps even essential for salvation. And I don't think he was going to get assurance until he did something. But it's nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We can't have one foot on Jesus Christ and another foot on I'm a good boy. I go to church. I'm part of the Brethren Church at Budrum. Other foundation can no man lay, which has been laid, and it's Christ and him alone. Well now Paul laid a very solid foundation at Corinth and other people have been building on it and Paul's got a word to say to them. These people are probably other teachers within the church, visiting preachers, quite possibly those who made a big deal of wisdom. And he's concerned that the quality foundation which Paul had laid is not being matched with quality building materials in the superstructure. We've applied this generally to all Christians. You know, you're going to stand before God and he's going to test all your works and uh, those that are not gold, silver and precious stones will be burnt up like wood, hay and stubble. Now, I think there's truth in that, but I don't think it's what Paul had in mind primarily. I think he is saying some of you people are adding to this foundation through your teaching, through your views, truth that is suspect which is not in keeping with the foundation of Jesus Christ and what you're doing is going to be tried by fire you may make it into heaven but you may be empty handed, nothing to show it's a challenge to me it's a challenge to Bill and everybody who ever stands in this pulpit even in your conversations with other people if you're pushing something which is not glorifying to Christ the foundation and the structure is not built with solid material so it's a strong building then there's a serious word here for us all then he says this is a special kind of temple a building it's a temple The temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, whose image would you expect to see in a temple to Buddha? Who would you see? Buddha. You expect Buddha to be there. Well, this is the temple of God and who lives in it? Uh -uh. Ah, the text. What does the text say? Who lives in it? The Holy Spirit. Now, I stress this because the third person of the Trinity is God. Some people have difficulty with the Trinity. Here is one text that's very, very important when teaching the Trinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. And this text makes clear that the Holy Spirit is God. He's the one who lives in the temple of God some people have felt that this is a parallel text to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians where Paul says don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit no they're not parallel passages don't assume that because similar words are used in two texts that they are identical no The word here, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? The you is plural. So if this was the church at Corinth, Paul would say, you plural are the one singular temple of God. And each of you is a stone in that temple. Peter uses this analogy. He says we are living stones being built up a spiritual house. So in terms of this text, there's only one temple made up of many bricks. But in terms of chapter 6, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? We've got 60 temples here. Paul is making a different point. Here the emphasis is upon that church of god which is built upon jesus christ as the foundation and which is growing holy temples, says ephesians but in chapter 6 he's speaking about immorality and he's saying your body is the temple of the holy spirit and you can't use it for immoral purposes now you've got a very solemn word at the end of this section He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's a serious word. Some people have misused this on the grounds of their thinking this is the same as chapter 6. So they see somebody smoking a cigarette and they say, oh, if anyone destroys the temple of God. No. no. I'm not advocating cigarette smoking by any means. This is not a text to use. If you want to uh, correct the abuse of the body, chapter 6 would be better, but even the context there is, is different. No. How was the temple of God being destroyed? With their party spirit. Instead of one temple, we've got a little shrine over there for Apollos and another shrine over there for Paul and so on. The unity of the one temple is being destroyed not only through their party spirit, but through their quarrelling, their jealousy, and through wrong teaching. This so-called wisdom, which is foolishness with God. How are we to understand the phrase, God will destroy him? Well, to be put this way, if you do such a serious thing to God's sacred temple, God will do a very serious thing to you. Well, Let's just recap and we'll get to the last section, the one you're all hoping will happen quickly. Listen carefully. This church has got a problem. They're clubbing around leaders. They're magnifying human wisdom. They are jealous. They're rivals of one another. They've got their eyes off God and they're looking at people. And Paul is concerned. And he's about to wrap this up now in a very few words. Don't deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Why? For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, as it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. That was one of their problems. And then he addresses... This second issue. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or that that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is of God. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. It's almost a doxology there at the end of this chapter. Well, he says if you are one of those in Corinth who thinks that Greek philosophy and worldly wisdom is the thing, you need to become a fool. You need to get back to that foundation truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, you think it's just milk. No, it's solid food. Solid food. Some of you aren't growing in your Christian life. You weren't able to handle it and you still can't handle it you're carnal, fleshly, all because you're magnifying man-made wisdom and you need to be willing to be a fool. And we will be fools in the eyes of the world. I go to a discussion group or two, I've mentioned this before, with University of the Third Age. That's for older people like me. I'm enjoying it greatly because I'm mixing with people who don't know the Lord. Most of my working life has been in Bible colleges and it's great now to be relating to people who are thinking people. One guy there, oh, he thinks that, you know, it's like believing in the tooth fairy to believe in God. So I'm looked upon as a fool I don't care I don't care Romans chapter 1 says professing themselves to be wise they became fools yes you'll be laughed at if at the university you are brave enough to say that you believe in God and you believe in miracles and you believe in heaven and hell Yes, you'll be laughed at. I think you're a fool. Well, Paul says to the Corinthians, you need to become a fool if you're right into this worldly kind of wisdom. He finishes with this wonderful doxology. All things are yours. Paul is yours. You people that say we are of Paul, no, Paul is yours. You see the switch here? You people who think Apollos is the greatest and you are his disciples, no. Apollos is yours. They in themselves are nothing. They don't claim to be anybody. They're just God's workers doing his will. But they belong to you, not you belong to them. Gordon Fee has written an excellent commentary on, on the Book of Corinthians, and if you're following along in this study, I'd highly recommend, it, recommend his demanding commentary, Gordon Fee. <laughs> i will really not lent on that. He says that we can learn even from those with whom we disagree. There's a denominational note at Corinth. There's the Apollos denomination and the Peter denomination and the Paul denomination and each feels that it's better than the others. Brethren people have prided themselves in not being a denomination. That's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Once you have distinctives and meet in a certain way, you a denomination. Oh, it may not be structured like other denominations. John Wesley once had a dream. He dreamt that he'd come down to the gates of hell and he said to the porter at the gate, are there any Presbyterians in here? And the porter said, yes. Are there any Baptists here? Yes. Are there any Episcopalians here? Yes. Any Methodists here? Yes. He's a bit taken back. He was then ushered to the gate of heaven. And he asked the same questions. Any Presbyterians here? Nope. Any Baptists? Nope. Episcopali? No. Methodists? No. No, said John Wesley. No. It's just Christians here. Just Christians. We need to be careful that there isn't a sort of denominational pride. I am of the brethren. Or well, with some of the media attention that certain sections of the brethren uh, are cl- classified as, well, I wouldn't want to use the name, quite frankly. I'm going to give you my own take on this because. I find it helpful in witnessing. I don't like labels. I don't like labels. I don't want to be thought to be a Calvinist or an Arminian. Because I mightn't agree with everything that people of that persuasion believe. No, I want to be a biblical person, a biblical Christian. Years ago when I was a student at at college, we had to go door-to-door vis- visiting, part of our training, you know. And sometimes you, you'll knock on a door, you might say, "Oh I'm here to sell some Christian books or I'd like to invite you along to a meeting or whatever." and you'll get this response: "I have my own religion, thank you." Now that's meant to get rid of you, right? That's a device. That people use to say not interested clear out and of course if we don't know what to say after that we walk away and they probably say well another one I've got rid of I suggest you do this well it's refreshing to hear that somebody still goes to church. Because as I go round from door to door, I find that so many people haven't got any interest in spiritual things. And I'm so pleased to hear that you have an interest in spiritual things. (laughs) And they might say, well, I'm a Catholic. No, don't start running the Pope down or worship of Mary. No, that's not the way to do it. No. Far better to say... Well, God has got only one church, really. And it has members in the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church, the Episcopalian, the Methodists and the Presbyterians. Yes. And they are members of his church because they have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for their sins. Now, I'm starting to preach the gospel, right? A moment ago, I was preparing to walk away But instead of knocking this person, instead of responding to their attempt to get rid of me, you say, well, I don't really like labels. You're wearing a Catholic label. I go to church, but look, it's not the label that counts as far as I'm concerned. It's far more important to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you have that, then you belong to his church and it doesn't have this name or that name on it. It's the Christian church, the church that he established on the foundation of his son, Jesus Christ. I want to read a little bit from A.W. Tozer. He said, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Look at that triangle. There's me in that corner. There's my brother and sister. In that corner. Remember that children's hymn? You in your small corner, I in mine. <laughs> I don't think it was used in this context, but I think the words could be applied. Now, this is what happens is I and my brother or sister get closer to each other. I also get closer to God. And what had happened at Corinth was this, that you had the I am of Paul group over here and the I am of Apollos group over here and another group up there and so on. Running one another down, quarrelling, holding their leader up as the greatest of this and the greatest of that. They were separated from from one another and sadly separated from God. As well, If we will tune our lives to God, we'll be in tune with one another. But that can be costly, friends. See, I believe that pride was very much the root problem at Corinth. Pride's a horrible thing. The verse in Proverbs says, only by pride comes contention. D.L. Moody said there are two ways of being united together. You can be frozen together or you can be melted together. But melting is not pleasant. To be melted together may mean that we have to say to somebody even in this room after the service, we haven't been hitting it off lately. I've been critical of you. And I've sensed, and you have sensed, that there's a barrier between us. Can we meet for coffee? Or could we have prayer before we go home? Could we hug one another? There might even be tears. And that could be the beginning of blessings such as you've never seen before. Satan knows that the best way to stop growth, and it happened at Corinth, is to get Christians separated from one another. So this passage is very relevant to us. Let's pray together. And perhaps some face, some name has come into your mind even as we've been speaking today. And perhaps you have to humble yourself. Be reconciled. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Heavenly Father, we pray that whatever is relevant to us today, you will apply and give us the grace to respond appropriately. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's sing that verse of, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I hope we can all sing this and mean it very possible that even in a service like this there's someone who is not standing with both feet on Christ alone for salvation. If you were asked that question why should I let you into heaven what would you say? You might say well oh well I've always believed in God or I you know, I've never murdered anybody, or I'm pretty regular attending church, or something like that. No, you're going to be very disappointed. This is what I would say I would quote a little poem in a book about Amy Carmichael. Why should I let you into heaven? I would say, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. To put that in simpler words, my only hope of being accepted into heaven is what Jesus did for me. He lived the life I shouldn't, should have lived and haven't. And he died the death I should have died. And that's what this hymn is about, friends. Listen. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. That's the death He died. and His righteousness without sin. And when we come to Christ and make him our Lord and Savior, do you know what? We get the lot. We get his death to deal with the problem of our sin. And we get his righteousness to make us acceptable to a holy God. And that's the only foundation, for hope, of entering heaven. Let's stand and sing this one verse only and the chorus. If it's true, sing it if you mean it. My hope is built on nothing less Than Jesus' blood and righteousness I did not tell my other The Holy in Jesus' name On Christ the solid rock I stand All of the ground is sinking sand like.